from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile, and disturbing behaviors. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Special thanks to some of my patrons. Elise, Chantel, Sonia, Dan, Maya, Linda, Teresa, my dear three Emmas, Jessica, Lady Janice, Elena, Alethea, John, Nanette, Rachel, Sophie, Whitney, David, Catherine, Trudy, and Stacy. Thank you so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please like, share, subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. This week's podcast will be a revisit on Joel Rifkin. Joel David Rifkin was born on January 20th, 1959 in New York City. So as we always do, let's get into some history for that time. New York City in the 50s and 60s were an interesting time. It was considered a golden age for entertainment. The Dodgers were still in Brooklyn and the Giants were still uptown. The garden was already a popular attraction, and Times Square was actually filled with native New Yorkers rather than the droves of tourists. There was a boom in construction, and everything was moving vertical. The area where the United Nations is once was the Slaughterhouse District. 52nd Street was Jazz Mecca. Midtown Manhattan was considered the center of the American music industry, Three of the biggest record labels had their headquarters there, RCA, Columbia, and DECA. The show Mad Men is a fair representation of the sleek and clean style of the times. But there was also a growing population of abject poverty, which was creating completely deplorable areas. Roosevelt Island was called Welfare Island back then. The eastern edge of the East Village, close to FDR Drive, many traditional apartment blocks were being bulldozed and, in their place, large-scale public housing projects. In Lower Manhattan, urban renewal began around 1960, following David Rockefeller's construction of the infamous One Chase Manhattan Plaza building. 
Pennsylvania Station was demolished to build Madison Square Garden. This was met with complete outrage. That led to the 1965 Landmarks Preservation Commission Law, which works to preserve the aesthetically and historically important buildings, structures, and other objects that make up what is classically known in the New York City landscape. They are responsible for deciding which buildings hold landmark status, which then triggers regulations to protect the historic look and nature of these buildings. They manage all five boroughs, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, and Staten Island. During the 1960s, things in the city began to change. There was a gradual economic and societal decay, and the city was beginning to lose its competitiveness. For example, New York lost both its longtime National League baseball teams, the Dodgers and the Giants, to California. In 1965, the Federal Immigration Act was passed, which abolished national origin quotas. This meant a huge influx of immigrants, mostly from Asia, which is now a very prominent Asian American community. That same year, New York experienced a citywide power outage, as did most of Eastern North America. Blue-collar jobs began to shift away from the city, and those population areas began to deteriorate, becoming centers for drugs and crime. Also during this time, strip clubs and other adult-themed businesses began infiltrating Times Square. The U.S. Navy decommissioned the Brooklyn Navy Yard and sold it to the city. It continued on as a shipbuilding site for another 11 years. So, as you can see, New York was, during the time of Joel Rifkin's birth, at the top of its game, but some areas were declining quickly. And this was the atmosphere that Joel was born into. Joel's mother was not ready for motherhood. She was 20 years old and still in college. His birth father was also a college student, but was also serving in the military and was 24 years old. Adoption was the choice, and Joel was adopted when he was just three weeks old. His new parents were Bernard and Jean Rifkin, who were described as an upper-middle-class couple. They named him Joel David Rifkin. So a little background on the parents. Back when Jean met Bernard in the late 40s, they had been college students. Most people at their age, and especially women, were already settled down into a life of domesticity, having children and being a housewife. Now, they did marry, but together they moved from New York to Oklahoma State University. Jean finished her graduate courses and became an art teacher at the college. Bernard finished his degree in structural engineering. They then moved back to New York, leased an apartment in the Bronx, and began trying to have children. At this point, Jean was 36 and Bernard was 40. And though I could not find any source stating this as a fact, it seems reasonable that they must have had some fertility issues, so they began the process of adoption. Now, Bernard was Jewish, and when Jean married him, she converted, but they had no synagogue affiliation. It is not believed that they were practicing, 
but they did go through and were approved for adoption by an agency that placed Jewish children with Jewish families. So it is reasonable to assume Joel's birth parents, or at least one, was Jewish. Not long after the adoption, Bernard and Jean bought a new home in Rockland County, north of the city, in a rural area, where they settled in and began their journey as brand new parents. They were in love with baby Joel. When he was three years old, they adopted another baby they named Jan. When it was nearing time for Joel to start kindergarten, the couple decided to move to East Meadow on Long Island due to Bernard getting a job at a fairly prestigious architectural firm. Joel later described being, quote, devastated at having to move away from the countryside into the city. He said, quote, the happiest period of my life keeps going back to Rockland County. The beginning of my conscious memory, when I was four, we had a very open backyard, maybe a half acre, surrounded by woods on both sides, across the street and behind us. So I had my frogs to play with, my tadpoles and newts. Whatever crawled into the woods, that was my toy. That was before anybody really started getting abusive. So that was a great time. End quote. He was referring to bullies getting abusive. So in 1964, as their new life with two children began, Bernard Rifkin was a structural engineer and Jean was a homemaker. The couple were described as gentle people, protective of their two children, and even forbid them to play with toy guns. Bernard was on the local school board and was a trustee of their local library, where a room was named after him. Jean was patient and kind, and she loved gardening. They were hardworking people and had no need for any recognition of their good deeds. They just simply did them. Now, some of you may not know this, but there was, and I think still is a rule, where you must be five years old before you can start kindergarten. Joel's birthday was at the cutoff for that district, so the new friends he had made in the new neighborhood started school, and he was left behind. When the kids were home and able to play, they wanted to play very athletic-type games, and Joel just didn't have the coordination, so he was often left out. When he was finally old enough, his parents enrolled him at the Prospect Avenue Elementary School, and it was not a good experience from the beginning. Joel never had good posture, and along with his very long face and the shape of his nose, the kids called him the turtle. He also had a small speech impediment, and the other kids didn't neglect to bully him about that either. He never really felt like he could fit in with his peers, so he found a solace with his mother. She and Joel would spend time together in the garden and would give the neighbors their extra flowers and vegetables they grew. Along with his sloping posture, clumsiness, and incoordination, thus the kids excluding him from team sports, and also having to wear glasses, he also had undiagnosed dyslexia. Though his IQ was tested at 128, which is well above average, he performed poorly at school. When Joel was 11 years old, his parents, for whatever reason, decided to tell him that he was adopted. Also around this time, the bullying at school became pretty intense. 
He stated in a prison interview that he began doing things to avoid the other kids, such as waiting until the last second to walk to school so that he wouldn't be waiting around out front in view of the other kids. He would also stay a bit after school to give the other kids time to get home so he wouldn't be tormented as he walked home. More and more, he began to isolate himself and withdraw mentally. He spent nearly all of his free time, when he wasn't with his mother, in his room. He began collecting fossils and rocks such as sandstone, basalt, limestone, clay, and coal, and spent hours categorizing and organizing them. He enjoyed photography very much, as well as doing crafts. He also began to live out fantasies in his mind that grew increasingly dark and sexual. Rifkin's fantasy life began to overpower his hold on reality. After seeing the Alfred Hitchcock movie Frenzy as a teenager, he developed a sexual obsession with strangling women. I remember seeing Hitchcock's Frenzy, which I later had a videotape of, that built into fantasy life. He would picture women getting abused or hurt in some way, which then developed into what he called the, quote, gladiatorial fantasies, where women would fight to the death over him, Joel being the prize. As he began getting interested in girls at school, he saw that clearly they wanted nothing to do with him. But he wanted to fit in, so he decided he would join the track team, but his teammates were ruthless. The bullying intensified. Joel soon quit track and joined yearbook. He enjoyed taking photos for the class, but soon his camera was stolen and he was intentionally not invited to the end of the year party for the yearbook staff. His peers threw eggs at him, jerked his pants down in front of girls, and even dunked his head in a school toilet. Joel started daydreaming about raping and stabbing or strangling women afterward, focusing mostly on prostitutes. And during all of this, he desperately wanted to make his father proud. He looked up to his father, who had been an athlete as a kid, who as an adult was strong and successful and everyone seemed to like him, whereas Joel felt like he was the complete opposite. As we got older, though, and more of our personalities came out, uh, more and more it became my father's little disappointment. He grew impatient with his son, Joel. Like every father, he's very excited about teaching me sports. He tried teaching me how to throw a football, which was his sport in high school. Oh, I couldn't catch the thing. And he just got, after a year or two, he got extremely frustrated. And that was that. No more football. When he was old enough, his parents gave him a car and he began driving around the boroughs of New York trolling for sex workers. At first, he just watched them, but then he decided he didn't want to graduate high school a virgin, so he eventually drove into the city, hired a prostitute, and had his first real sexual experience. He said, quote, She approached me and said, Are you looking for a date? Yeah, kinda. What's the deal? And she named the prices, and that was it. End quote. After that, he visited prostitutes more and more, becoming addicted to the whole experience. And so, that was Joel Rifkin's childhood. Let's take a look. 
With Joel being adopted at just three weeks old, we know nothing about his genetic background. We know his parents were young, but not too young to be parents for the time. We know they were college students, so it is reasonable to assume they were intelligent and came from decent families, and we know they were not married. But that's all we've got. The records are sealed. The first question that I'm sure popped into your head was, is there a correlation or connection to children who were adopted and them growing up to be dangerous, going as far as becoming serial killers? Some of the better known serial killers were actually adopted. David Berkowitz, AKA the son of Sam, was adopted. Ted Bundy and Eileen Warnos were adopted by their birth grandparents. Kenneth Bianchi, one of the Hillside Stranglers, as well as Richard Speck, who was more of a spree killer, were adopted, and our Joel Rifkin, to name a few. But it is wise to remember that the percent of the population that is adopted in general is somewhere around 2%. With the current population of the U.S. alone being roughly 327 million people, that would be about 6.5 million adopted citizens in the U.S. On the other side, the percent of the American population that is thought to be actual serial killers, both free and jailed, is 0.00008% or lower, which equals about 262 people out of the entire country. So if you do the math, approximately... Five people out of 6.5 million who were adopted could potentially be serial killers. Those numbers do not tell me that the number of adopted children who later grow up to be serial killers is really anything to worry about. In fact, according to the New York Post, as well as a study conducted at Radford University, out of all of the known serial killers, 78% were raised by their birth parents, and only 14% were adopted, leaving 8% as other, whatever that could mean. But there are still numbers there. So let's look at that. So for some adopted children, they later learned that their adoption was closed. That means their birth records are sealed and cannot be seen. There has been some research that suggests children who do not know where they come from can cause mental trauma and illness. There is also something called the, quote, adopted child syndrome, end quote. According to Dr. Tracy L. Carlos, the syndrome is a term used to describe a set of behaviors that have been used to explain problems in bonding, attachment, lying, stealing, defiance of authority, and acts of violence with regards to adopted children. It hits the adoptees particularly hard when the adoptive families treat the adoption as a big secret and don't wish to discuss it with their child. In this circumstance in particular, this can lead to, at the very least, oppositional defiant disorder, which can then lead to antisocial behavior or personality disorder. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Sometimes the adopted child suffers from an utter lack of similarities in both personality and physical likeness to their adoptive parents. They feel a sense of being unwanted or abandoned and feeling unloved, even if they are wanted and loved in their adopted family. How the adoption is handled and how the adoptive family connects with the child and how open and honest they are with the child greatly affects the outcome of how that child develops. But these cases are still pretty rare. Most adopted children grow up to be healthy, well-adjusted adults. This means that if an adopted child who is loved and well taken care of is openly communicated with and so on, who grows up to be a serial killer, often already have issues that are not related to being adopted. It's the saying, quote, correlation does not show causation. The pathology was already there, sewn into the fabric of that child's being. Could Joel have inherited something from one of his biological parents? Possibly, highly likely, but we will never be able to know for sure. Joel was adopted by nearing middle-aged parents. Both parents were highly intelligent and very well-educated for that time. By all outward appearances, they were outgoing, kind, generous, charitable, and they doted over him as he was growing up. One can imagine that, since the family was upper middle class, he wanted for nothing. Joel did bring up the fact that he always felt like a failure to his father, that his father was again highly intelligent, athletic, and very good at math. He told a story about how his father would sit with him for long stretches of time to try to help young Joel with his math homework. The answers came easily for Bernard, but Joel had undiagnosed dyslexia and said he couldn't even memorize the multiplication tables. He said his father would get frustrated enough that he would get up from the table and walk away for a bit. And while removing oneself from a frustrating situation rather than taking it out on the child is perfectly ideal, Joel would have most certainly felt some level of shame. That is quite literally the only negative thing I could find regarding his childhood when it comes to his parents. There is zero evidence of abuse. Watch any interview with Joel and you won't hear a word about him being mistreated in any way by his father or his mother. They did the very best that they could by him. There is also no evidence to suggest that he had any negative experiences with his younger sister other than what would be normal sibling rivalry. What we do know is that he suffered from terrible bullying. According to Gerald Cassidy, professor of psychology at Ball State University, bullied children have a tendency to become emotionally withdrawn. In situations where they were already quiet, shy, and introverted, the experience will often push them to become even more so to the point that they have trouble interacting with their peers. They experience anxiety, depression, trouble sleeping or eating, or even get to where they are unable to enjoy the activities they once did. School performance drops drastically, but the more troubling side effect is that the child begins to harbor feelings of anger 
and rage. The long-term effects of bullying include depression and anxiety that become chronic in nature. The victim's self-image is usually permanently altered. They feel that they are too weak or too hopeless to be successful and therefore, in a sense, give up goals and dreams before they've even begun. They have a much harder time trusting people and make fewer positive choices. And there is a marked increase in risk of developing personality disorders as well as aggression and abusive behavior later in life. This is what we see most when it comes to Joel Rifkin. So let's get back to the story. Joel graduated from East Meadow High School in 1977 and enrolled at Nassau Community College to study horticulture, but he promptly dropped out after earning only 12 credits, about one semester. He also had odd jobs here and there, but he never worked anywhere for very long. He tried to start over at a couple of other colleges, but he just couldn't stick with it. His all-consuming obsession with the ladies of the night took every penny he made, so he often had to move back home to his parents' house. Joel and his father would get into loud shouting matches over Joel's lack of motivation to better himself. Then, just two years later, his father was diagnosed with prostate cancer. The pain became so intense and unbearable that Bernard committed suicide by overdosing on barbiturates. Joel was devastated, but he did give the eulogy at his father's funeral. Not long after, he was arrested for the first time, attempting to solicit sex from an undercover policewoman. It amounted to just paying a fine, which he did, and he kept this incident from his mother and sister. After, he stopped going to his local area to pick up prostitutes. He began driving into Manhattan to find them. By the time he began to murder them, Joel had slept with hundreds of working girls. Interestingly, Joel also began keeping newspaper clippings of news related to murdered prostitutes as he amassed several notebooks full. He was also interested in the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway. In 1988, he decided to give college another try, and he enrolled in a two-year horticulture study program at the State College of Technology in Farmingdale, New York. He excelled, made excellent grades for the first two semesters. Due to his hard work, he was awarded an internship at the Planting Fields Arboretum in Oyster Bay, New York. For once in his life, he had finally found some measure of success, and he was proud of himself. So, whatever changed or snapped in Joel's now 30-year-old mind was about a year after his father's death in 1989. Joel's mother was going out of town on a trip. Once his mother was out of the house, Joel went trolling for a prostitute. He picked up a girl called Susie in Manhattan. Only her real name was Heidi Balch. She was 25 years old, heavily addicted to drugs, and HIV positive. He took her back to his mother's home, where they proceeded to have sex. She then began shooting up heroin, and she fell asleep. When she awoke, they had sex, and then she began asking him where she could pick up some more heroin near them. 
Joel didn't do drugs and began to get angry due to her bothering him to take her to find more. And just like nearly every other time before, he was in the throes of his fantasy about hurting or killing a prostitute, but she was making him angry. So he picked up a novelty howitzer shell and bludgeoned her in the head repeatedly. He then started to strangle her. She fought like hell against him, but ultimately she died. After realizing she was dead, Joel started to panic. His anxiety became so intense that he believed that the police were right outside the door. He jumped up, looked out through the blinds, but eventually he calmed down. He then decided to go lay down and go to sleep, and he later said in an interview with FBI profiler Mark Safarik that he slept peacefully for about six hours. When he awoke, he at first thought perhaps he hadn't killed her. He walked down to the basement, poked at her to see if she might just be sleeping, and realized the truth. He thought about how he was going to get rid of her body and decided to dismember her. He removed her teeth as well as the skin from the ends of her fingers in an attempt to make her remains unidentifiable. He then wrapped the sections and put them into bags. Her head was put into an empty paint can. He drove around dumping her remains in various locations. Her head he discarded on a golf course. The paint can containing her head was soon discovered by a golfer, and though she couldn't be identified, it scared Joel enough that he vowed to never kill again. He did, however, go right back to visiting and hiring prostitutes, and each time he slept with one, the memory of killing his first victim would play out in his head over and over. The urge to kill came back stronger with each encounter. A year and a half later, Joel could not shake the fear as well as the thrill of his first kill. In late 1990, Joel found Julie Blackbird working under the Manhattan Bridge and picked her up. With his mother out of town again, he took Julie back to the house where they spent the night together. She took a shower, they watched TV together, and when it was time to take her back, Joel stated he was going to stop at an ATM machine and withdraw extra money to pay her with. But as they were leaving the house, he hit her in the head from behind with a table leg and then strangled her to death. He then dismembered her body, placed the parts into buckets, filled them with concrete and tossed them into the East River and the Brooklyn Canal. Now, Joel had a taste for murder. His third victim on September 1st, 1991, was 31-year-old Barbara Jacobs. She had fallen asleep after they had sex, so Joel began bludgeoning her with the table leg. She violently fought back, but he killed her. This time, he didn't dismember her. He took her body and dumped it into the Hudson River. She was found hours later, but her death was ruled a drug overdose. His fourth victim he picked up later that same month was 22-year-old Mary Ellen DeLuca. This victim was a new experience for him. They got a motel room. She began crying and saying she had just gotten out of rehab and that she had no business doing this. 
She said she was afraid her boyfriend was going to break up with her. She was at a low point in her life. He then asked her if she wanted to die, and to his shock and amazement, she said, yes. So he began strangling her, and he said she never attempted to fight back. Regardless, he left her body in the woods near a rest stop. She was found a month later. Joel's fifth victim in September was 31-year-old Yun Lee, who was a prostitute he had spent time with previously. But for some reason, he was unable to perform, which was humiliating. He bludgeoned her, strangled her, and dropped her body in the East River. She was found a few days later. On and on he murdered, girl after girl he killed, dumping their bodies. Most he dismembered, but some he did not. One victim in November of 1992 fought him so hard she had broken every fingernail on both her hands. Joel later commented that she was taking too long to die, so he snapped her neck. His last victim was 22-year-old Tiffany Bresciani. It was June 24, 1993. By this time, his body count was up to 16 women. Tiffany had made her way to New York from Louisiana to be an actress or a model. However, like so many people who moved to the big city, she got caught up in the drug scene and became a heroin addict. She resorted to sex work to support that habit. She had been his second girl for that night. Once they had finished, he drove her to a parking lot and strangled her. It was 5.30 a.m. and he decided to head home. He left her in the back seat of his mother's car. She was naked and he had to put the floor mats over her body to conceal it. Joel stopped along the way to buy some rope and a tarp so he could wrap her body up. The next morning, his mother wanted to do some shopping and took her car with the body now in the trunk. She returned and clearly hadn't used the trunk. Now it's around 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, drive home. Mom has some shopping errands to run. It's her car. So mom drives off. But after that close call, he placed Tiffany's body in a wheelbarrow in the garage that his mother and sister never went into and then left it there for three days. Being that it was summer and Tiffany's body had been there for a few days, of course, the stench was becoming unbearable. So late on June 28th, he put her body in the back of his pickup and drove off to dispose of it. So, a police officer noticed Joel's truck had no license plate. He tried to pull him over, but Joel sped off, speeding sometimes upward of nearly 100 miles per hour. The pursuit lasted 30 minutes, but he ultimately crashed into an electrical pole. As the police officer approached the little Mazda truck, Joel was sitting there with his hands raised, quietly. As the officer began to circle the vehicle to inspect, he caught a whiff of something very familiar to most people in law enforcement, the smell of rotting human flesh. He opened the tailgate, lifted the camper top glass, and found the blue tarp. He pulled a rolled-up corner back and discovered Tiffany's body. The officer immediately 
called for backup. 34-year-old Joel was taken to the police station, and he was quite cooperative from the beginning of the questioning. He was described as cool, calm, and emotionally detached. Joel later stated that there was no point in being evasive, so he gave them the entire story. They gave him a notepad, and he wrote out each victim, as well as drawing maps of where they could find some of his undiscovered victims. The police then conducted a search of his room at his mother's house. It was in complete disarray. Used, dirty dishes lay strewn about. Piles of dirty clothes and magazines were everywhere. But within the filth, they found Joel's trophies that he had kept from his victims. Jewelry, ID cards, underwear, clothing, and others. They also found his notebooks and novels of other serial killers that he had stashed in his room as if he were studying how to be a better serial killer. New York had already abolished the death penalty, but nonetheless, he chose to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. He stated that finding out he was adopted sparked the beginning of his downward spiral, but everyone knew that was not it. He took steps to evade detection and capture, proving that he knew what he was doing was wrong. He was found guilty and sentenced to 203 years in prison. He is still alive and serving his sentence in New York as of this recording. Joel is a sexual sadist, and I did a podcast on sexual sadism in a true crime science episode, which I'll link in the notes if you are interested. This is a classification where the person experiences sexual arousal from afflicting pain or humiliation on others. Joe also stated himself that he had been told he is a psychopath, that he has a deficiency in the frontal lobe of his brain as well as his amygdala. I've mentioned this doctor before, but Dr. James Fallon is an excellent resource with regards to studying serial killers and psychopathic brains and brain scans. He has stated that most do have much less activity in the prefrontal cortex and amygdala of the brain, where a person's morality and ethics are involved. The amygdala is crucial for decoding emotions, survival instincts, and memory. The prefrontal cortex is associated with complex cognitive behaviors and how the person shows appropriate social behavior. So in summation, it is impossible to look back on his family history to see if there is a pattern of mental illness because he was adopted, as we well know, and his records are sealed. We do know that he was not subjected to any abuse or neglect in his childhood from his adoptive parents. To the contrary, they were good to him. He had a much better life at home than most. But what we also know is that he was bullied horrifically. We heard what the research says about how bullying affects children and how it can leave permanent mental damage. So, did he already have some sort of psychological issue that bullying ignited into existence? Or did the bullying push him mentally to the point that he could murder? Born to kill or conditioned to kill? Perhaps both. Tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing 
All of my contact information is in the notes. And as always, thank you so much for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I really appreciate that. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Uh, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.